So if you remember from the end of last week, Jesus' brothers have said, hey, you should go to Jerusalem to the festival. Make a name for yourself, for your own glory, your own mission. Jesus said, that's not how it works for me. I'm executing the mission of God for the glory of the Father. However, something changes, and we would believe that the Father speaks to Jesus and says, no, you should go. And so it says that Jesus goes then to the temple or to the city at the, the festival of the, or the tabernacles, uh, the Feast of Booths, as it were, and he begins teaching. And the longer he's there, the more bold his teaching gets. And this morning, his teaching gets so bold that he's going to say some things that ought to make your eyebrows raise just a little bit. So, excited to get in there? Good. John chapter 8, verse 31, and we'll go to verse 47. This is what John says. It says, To the Jews who had believed Him, Jesus said. Now to kind of set this up, so Jesus has been teaching in this, te- in this temple or in the temple courts in different ways for several days. And you may remember, He's getting a mixed response, right? Some people are believing Him. That is, believing He's the Messiah that the Jewish people are longing for. Other people are uncertain. And then you've got people who are rejecting Him. So now Jesus is turning His teaching specifically to the people who are inclined to think this guy might be the Messiah. And He says to them, if you hold to My teaching, you are really My disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered Him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we'll be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me, because you have no room for my word. I am telling you, what I have seen in the Father's presence. And you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they said. Uh, or your translation might be more literal. We are not born of fornication. Some scholars believe that the, these people might know a little bit of the backstory of Jesus and are actually digging at him in this reality. The only father we have is God himself. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God has sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. So much for a secret, right? And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? 
Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. For a first century Jewish person who is claiming Abrahamic heritage, them's fighting words, right? You do not belong to God. And it goes on if you read to the end of the chapter where it says they, tried, they literally pick up stones and try to kill him, but he slips away. The very thing that Jesus told his brothers would happen is now happening. But let's try to get to the heart of what this pericope, this section of text, is actually getting after. And of course, it's the issue of freedom. Many of you have heard that verse before, the first two verses that we started with. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Actually, we know verse 32 pretty well. We forget to attach it to verse 31 sometimes. We'll talk about that towards the end. But Jesus is saying to people, okay, you believe that I might be the one sent from God? I might be the Messiah who's here to rescue us and, and, and bring back, usher in the presence of God again? Fantastic. Then hold to my teaching, and if you do, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now this idea of being set free, this idea of freedom, is deeply ingrained in the Jewish conscience. And they respond and say, whoa, 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 whoa. We've always been free. And we've got to figure out together, what on earth do they mean by free? Because we live some 2,000 years later and words change and definitions change at some level. Words come to mean different things. We were out to dinner last night celebrating my sister's birthday and uh, Rachel's birthday. And my niece did not come along with my, my sister and brother-in-law uh, and they were texting back and forth to her, and she sent a text, M-H-M. They asked her a question. She sent a text, M-H-M. You know what that means? None of us knew what it means. We had to look it up. It means yes, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Vocalized in M-H-M. And I said to myself, Y-E-S and M-H-M are the same number of letters. And my dad, ever the wiser sage, said, and OK is even shorter than both of those. <laughs> Language changes, okay? That's all the point I'm trying to make here. What are the Jewish people understanding? What is Jesus proposing to them? What are they objecting to when they talk about freedom? Well, they cannot mean political freedom, right? Because they are currently being occupied by the Roman Empire. And before that, it was the Seleucid Empire. And before that, it was the Ptolemaic Empire. And before that, it was the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. Before that, it was the Persian Empire under Cyrus. And before that, it was the Babylonian Empire. In other words, every major empire has enslaved Israel over the last number of years. They can't be talking about that unless they're delusional. And they're not. They also can't be talking about economic freedom, right? Because the major gripe against the Roman occupation was the amount of taxes and things they had to pay in to the Roman reality. So it is not freedom in a geopolitical sense that we might be ultimately drawn to thinking about. That's not what they're talking about here. It can't be. What they're talking about is an inner sense of freedom. A freedom of the soul. A freedom of the inner being. And Jewish people knew at the core that's what they were promised by God. That's a covenant promise. That's what they say. We've never been enslaved in that way. We've been set free because of God's covenant with our father Abraham. 
So as long as we can draw our lineage back to Him, we've got it. We're free. In other words, to a Jewish person, freedom meant the experience of the full life that they knew only came from a dynamic, interpersonal relationship with their Creator, which they alone, in their understanding, possessed in all of the world. No one else had that. And they were right. It also, freedom meant the ability to be who they were created to be. To be Jewish. Right? To, to act ritually the way they were intended to. To, to enculturate their reality. So in essence, to, to have a true and free, uh, freedom-bearing relationship with Creator God and to have the experience of freely being who they were created to be. When Jesus talks about freedom, He's talking like a first century Jewish person. He's not talking like uh, an American in 2024. We'll talk about that in just a second. This is what He's talking about. And the Jewish people know exactly what He's talking about. And they say, whoa, we like all the things you're talking about geopolitically over here, but we don't need any internal freedom. We've got that figured out. That's the one thing we've got. We've never been slaves to anyone. Now, John has been setting us up as readers to understand what's going on here. I've tried to to show you that John is one of the great storytellers of the first century. And he's a a multi-layered storyteller. So ever since John chapter 5, if you remember, we've had all this allusion to the wilderness experience. Remember? The 38 years of wandering in the wilderness. The man who was disabled for 38 years. The experience of unbelief in that man, even though... Jesus was doing miraculous things for him was the testimony of what the wilderness generation of the Old Testament were experiencing. Regular miracles from God that led to radical unbelief. (laughs) And ultimately led to what? Their demise in the wilderness. They never got to the ultimate experience of freedom, rest, which was life in the land with God where blessing happened. Now, think with me for just a second. When is Jesus doing all of this teaching? John's very careful to tell us, isn't he? It's a festival. It's the festival of tabernacles. Or the Feast of Booths, as it were. Do you know what that festival symbolizes? Israel's life in the wilderness. Right? Where they made structures and lived so they could remember their existence in the wilderness. And John is like, whoa, Flashing lights here, people. You Jewish people of this day have the same story as the wilderness people. Radical experiences with God married to radical, even if subtle, unbelief. And Jesus, in John chapter 8, towards the end of His teaching in in the temple in the middle of this feast, is ready to proverbially, as it were, rip the band-aid off. Right? He's going to go there. And he says, listen, I'm not talking about the things you think I'm talking about. I'm talking about the thing no one ever really wants to fess up to. The thing that actually enslaves you. I'm talking about sin. In other words, Jesus says correctly, oh, you can draw your lineage right back to Abraham. No question about it. But if you keep going back further, your lineage actually goes all the way back to Adam. 
and to Eve and to that great incident in the garden where the devil won the day. And Jesus quite emphatically says, you can call Abraham your father, fair enough, but I'm calling the devil your father. Because when I look at how you behave, how you order your life, the choices you make, and specifically your response to me, I see more devil than Abraham. Now, if there ever was hard teaching, we've hit it, right? Now, I'm just going to like not bury the lead. I'm going to go there too with you and with me. Jesus would say very similar things to us. It's hard, but we've got to wrestle through it if we're going to truly understand what Jesus is offering us. Jesus says, listen, if you had more Abraham than devil in you, you would understand everything I'm saying because all I'm doing is speaking the very words that God the Father is giving me to say and you're rejecting them. It's the brokenness in them, the sin in them. You you remember, we, we try to differentiate when we talk about sin here between what I call, and hopefully this is helpful, what I call capital S sin and lowercase s sin. Most of us, all we ever think about is lowercase s sin. I lied, I screwed up, I cheated, I, I was lazy, whatever. List any number of lowercase s sins. That's never what Jesus is talking about. Those are manifestations of the real internal problem. Right? They are symptoms, not the disease. Jesus is talking about the disease, capital S sin, that inner brokenness that exists in us that leads to all of these things. And Jesus is saying, I see more of its manifestation than of covenant manifestation in you. So much so that you're rejecting the very words of God. The very messenger of God. It is that brokenness in them that would lead them to kill Jesus. And I want to say to you, somewhat in provocation, (laughs) it is that brokenness in us that leads us to want to kill Jesus. I'm not suggesting you have plans of erecting a cross and hanging Him on it, but it is the brokenness in you that wants to keep Jesus at arm's length. That wants to hear but not really understand. That wants to acknowledge but not embrace. That wants to affirm but not let it transform you. That great power is enslaving you and me and them. And unless and until we acknowledge it, in its massive reality, we cannot have anything close to true freedom. And Jesus is simply exposing it. Remember what He said to His brothers? The world hates me because I expose sin. Right? He didn't come to condemn it per se. He came actually to rescue us from it. But as I like to say, the Gospel we say is good news, but you can't really have good news unless the possibility of bad news sits right next to it. Right? So the greatest news you've ever had is because there was a sense of bad news 
of heaviness that sat near it. Right? And your experience of that is equal to the experience of the hopeless. Right? The experience of hope is equal to the experience of possible hopelessness that you might have side by side. And Jesus is simply exposing that because the more we know of that, the more we actually can need and embrace and respond to Jesus. It doesn't work for the Jewish people. right? They say, we've got what we need for that. You, if you want to get rid of the Romans, we're on board. <laughs> right? If you want to get rid of the Romans, if you want to reset up the high priesthood and all of our Jewish stuff, just get that rolling again for us. We're with you. Uh, I think of it like C.S. Lewis used to use this example. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis, he said, he said, Jesus is not the kind of person who you invite in to do a little rearranging. Right? Jesus, when he moves into your house, he starts knocking down walls and changing bathrooms into family rooms. Like massive reconstruction, right? The Jewish people were like, well, yeah, you can come in and like, you know, move that couch maybe to that wall and maybe the TV would be better over here. And he's like, no, you don't understand. This is a complete rebuild. We're going to knock this thing down to the studs. So I just want you to know, like, if you're serious about inviting Jesus into you, that's the kind of reconstruction project He intends and is capable of fully performing in you. Jewish people say no. So I turn to you this morning and say, would you like to be free? Perhaps a better question to start is, are you free? Now, I want to answer that question for you. No, you are not. Okay? You can dismiss me. That's fine. Uh, you get to wrestle that through on your own. I've come to the conclusion that I am not free. I've also come to the conclusion that all of humanity is not free. Now, we need to translate freedom into our modern American language, don't we? Because when we think of free, what do we think of? And we've got, you know, 200 and some years of this built into us, all the way back to the Declaration of Independence and all of that stuff that Americans cherish, and at some level, fine. But for us, largely, unless you have large cultural overlaps, but for most Americans, when we talk about freedom, we're talking about self-rule, baby. Right? I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. No one else tells me what to do. Unless I think what you're saying can help me get somewhere. Self-mastery. Self-rule. No governance until someone around you does something bad and you want them to be taken care of, right? Here's the problem with that. No one has ever actually experienced that. It's actually not freedom. At some level, what our American world propagates as freedom is actually a great enslavement itself. Because it is impossible to obtain. When you get honest with yourself, you will have to acknowledge that at the core there is an internal reality, an internal understanding that you are incapable of self-rule. And that is why we all, even the most industrious, independent American amongst us, 
regularly give ourselves to other things. That's the story of our lives. Pursuing industry and self-rule and self-governance and, and, and the freedom that we think it might bring. I'm going to be my own person and yet regularly giving ourselves to any number of things because internally we know we're incapable of accomplishing that internal freedom that we're actually after. So I want to propose to you two things. One, the Jewish people were right and we are wrong. Get that, right? High five for first century Pharisees for just a second here. Their understanding of freedom is correct. Our modern understanding is less correct. That true freedom is actually an internal, internally generated thing not an externally, manif- an externally accumulated thing. Does it make sense? That we can't clear out for ourselves rule that is going to enable us to experience the kind of internal freedom that Jesus is offering. But the internal freedom that Jesus is offering is independent, because it's free, of the circumstances of our life. High, low, and all that crazy time right in the middle you can actually have true internal freedom. How? By living in right relationship with your Creator. Core to the Christian belief is that there is a Creator, capital C, and therefore, you and I are creation, lowercase c. And to understand our identity then means necessarily that we can only understand ourselves in relation to He who created us. And therefore, to have that kind of connection, that kind of worshiping relationship, is step number one to true freedom. But then just like the first century Jewish people, it's also about understanding who we're meant to be. That true freedom comes when we are living in alignment with who we're supposed to be. To say, as we sometimes like to say, when we're truly being human in the way that God intended humans to be. Now, take it or leave it, or wrestle through it now and for the rest of your life. But what I'm suggesting to you is that Jesus, when He offers you freedom, is offering you an internal sense of release, an eternal sense of perfect harmony, shalom, as Jewish people would say in the first century world of Jesus, where everything is functioning right because you are in right relationship with your Creator. That is a submissive right relationship with your Creator. And you are functioning, using your being in the way that God intended you to use it. That's when you actually experience freedom. Now, we're forced to answer the question that Jesus was pushing to the Jewish leaders. Okay, but how do you do that? And they said, well, we trace our ancestry back to Abraham, which simply meant at some level we do all the things. And Jesus is basically saying, listen, haven't you caught the plot yet of the whole story? In and of yourself, you're incapable It's a new heart that you actually need. 
So Jesus says in verse 31 and 32 as we tie a bow on this thing, that the way to freedom is actually remaining in His teaching. Does that clear it up for you? Good. Let's figure this out over the next five or ten minutes together. Remain is a favorite word of the Apostle John. He uses it all the time. In his letters and in his Gospel. It's the Greek word meno. Sometimes it means to abide or to dwell. Right? It means you pitch your tent and you live there. Right? It's not just like, well, I was going to read the Bible for 10 minutes today, but I'm going to remain there for 15 minutes. No, it means like, make your dwelling permanently there. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that that means all you do for the rest of your life is read the Bible, though perhaps that can be a cool thing. I don't know. But in essence, Jesus is calling them to find their identity in His teaching, not in their ancestral heritage to Abraham. This is an identity thing from Jump Street. Okay? And the same is true for us. Jesus is teaching, is preaching a radical identity message. And we've kind of talked about this before. Half of it we really like. And the other half of it we really don't like. So let's start with a half we really don't like. Jesus says, I know your father, and he's the devil. Murder, lies, hate, all these things, that's the things we see in you. In other words, to summarize it as as, the late great preacher Tim Keller often said, you are as bad as you could be. (laughs) Now, that does not mean that there aren't people who have done far worse lowercase s sins than other people. Of course there are, right? But the capital S sin problem is equal in all of us. And unless and until we grapple hard with the fact that there's no way out of that, that it's crippling, that it's destructive in the whole of us, and how much more in a Western American society that says freedom is all about self-rule. And then you, then you marry that with capital S sin inside the heart of everyone who's trying to get self-rule, and you have the chaos that is the world we're living in right now. Jesus said, unless and until you understand what you're really enslaved to, there's no exit from it. Many of us would be like, oh, if I could just get past this thing, If I could just figure out this part, if I could just get this thing straightened out over here, then I'd really be off to the races. And Jesus, in essence, is basically like, no, 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 no. You haven't understood the gravity of the problem here. You've got a massive boulder that is keeping you down unless unless something divine comes and lifts it off of you. But the second part of the teaching of Jesus is the part that we loved. If you are as bad as you could be, God actually loves you far more than you could ever comprehend. And because the depravity is human-based and the love is divine-based, the love always defeats the depravity. And rescue is certain. But the people who are rescued are only the people who know they need to be rescued. 
Does it make sense? Right? If you're not out in the boat sending out SOS signals, there's a good chance the Coast Guard isn't coming for you. And for the Jewish people, they had no idea they needed the rescue that Jesus was coming to. And here's my fear. For many of us, if not most of us, we are unaware of just how desperate our situation is and just how much we are actually enslaved. Your experience of the freedom that Jesus offers you will always be equal to your experience of the desperation of your situation. If you need Jesus this much, guess how much of Jesus you'll, you'll allow yourself to have this much. But if you need Jesus this much, guess how much of Jesus you'll allow yourself to have this much. The issue isn't how much Jesus is willing to give. He's telling them that all the time. You're not listening to me. You're not hearing me. You're not receiving me. He'll give it all. But if we can't wrestle through the struggle, then we can't embrace the divine rescue. Okay. When you find your identity in the Gospel, that you are far more loved than you could ever imagine. Right? Even those of you who look in the mirror in the morning, you look, got up in the mirror this morning, you looked at yourself and you thought, this is one lovable dude right here, right? Even you are far more loved than you could even imagine, right? The love of God is pervasively comprehensive. We can't, we can't even, I can say pervasively incomprehensive, right? We can't even begin to touch the tips of it. The question actually is, do you think you need it? Because if you don't think you need it, you won't live there. Right? If you don't think you need it, you'll go make your dwelling somewhere else. Make my dwelling my vocation. That's my identity. I'll make my dwelling in my family life. That's my identity. I'll make my dwelling in my bank account, in my retirement. That's my identity. I'll make my dwelling in my political party and then the people who I'd love to you know, control or rule or, or legislate our country. You know, as is always the case, all of those things have positives to them. There's a reason you want to make your dwelling there. They offer you fickle, but some level of hope. But when we live there, what we're actually saying is we need less of God. And Jesus said, if you want freedom, all you have to do is live here. Live in my love. Find your identity here. And when you find your identity there, you also are receptive then, Jesus says, to His teaching. Which means you begin to order your life around His teaching. Now, we've, I've tried to, to share this with you philosophically. This is what I believe. That <clears throat> whatever, you are, whatever identity you're pursuing will always determine how you live your life. It's just true. It's philosophically true. You can wrestle through it or you can take my word for it. <laughs> Either way, it's fine. And so if you are finding identity in the Gospel, in the redeeming, rescuing love of God, it is going to transform how you order and live your life. 
if you're finding your identity there in, in this much, it's going to transform you this much. This much, this much. You see what I'm saying? This is what Jesus is saying. But the places where you're finding your identity elsewhere and where sin is allowed to, capital S sin is allowed to flourish, you're going to actually keep Jesus' message at arm's length. And in all those places, there is no freedom. There is no freedom. There might be cognitive freedom or what you perceive to be freedom or if I work harder, I'll get to freedom. But Jesus never actually says to you, if you want freedom, do these things. He says, if you want freedom, just live here. Just dwell right here. It's right here for you. You can have it. Fascinating, isn't it? Jesus says, if you do this, then you'll be my disciples. That's really important language for us to wrestle through. If you are part of a community group and you're doing the equipping gatherings, you're getting into some of this stuff more recently where we're trying to ask the question, is there a difference between calling ourselves a Christian and calling ourselves a disciple? Isn't it fascinating that the word Christian, I forget what it is, is used like two or three times in all the New Testament, but the word disciple is used like hundreds of times. Because Jesus was never interested in gathering Christians. He actually wanted to gather disciples. Now make of that what you want. Maybe that's just semantics for you. Fine. But Jesus identifies what a disciple is in passages like this. It's someone who lives, who finds their identity in what I'm saying and therefore orders their life around it. Obedience is part of it, but it's the natural outflow of finding true identity in something. What does Jesus say? If you do that, if you dwell here, it says you will know the truth. There's that word, gnosko in the Greek language. It's not, remember two, two words, oida and gnosko. Oida means knowing facts about, right? Oida is what you do when you're cramming for a test. Midterm's coming up soon, right? Oida, 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 oida. Test is over, knowing goes away, right? <laughs> gnosko means to have like strong relational connectivity to something, to know it in an interpersonal way. To be aware of it because you're with it. What is Jesus saying? It's a two-parted two-parted statement, isn't it? He says you're going to know the key to freedom, the truth, the aletheia. But he's later going to cue us into the fact that there's also a such thing as capital T truth, and that's actually him, right? So if you dwell in his teaching, you know Jesus, and that leads to freedom. If you know the truth, you will be free. And oh, by the way, if the Son sets you free, then you are free indeed. What is it that's got you enslaved? Are you enslaved to sin? Everyone shake your head yes. <laughs> it's true of all of us. I'm not trying to out you or make you make some big public confession. It's true of all of us. But because we're enslaved to sin, we've also found ourselves enslaved and enmeshed to all kinds of other things that are also unhealthy for us because we've put them in top position instead of Jesus. We've allowed other things to be Lord, not Jesus. We are dwelling in other places and therefore, knowing something else in a gnosko way and submitting ourselves to it. 
You are what you love. You worship what you love. You obey what you worship. Self-rule is a myth. We have all got multiple lowercase l lords that we are regularly submitting ourselves to. And all of us are not experiencing the freedom that Jesus offers. Imagine actual internal freedom where it no longer mattered what everyone around you thought. Where it no longer mattered what the circumstances of your life actually were. Listen, no one's hoping for hard times or anything like that. But a lot of us sit around and fret that they might come. Imagine. Imagine the true freedom that, that comes from actually functioning as you're meant to to be truly human. To no longer be trapped by the fear of man. To no longer be trapped by any kind of codependency. To no longer be trapped by any lies of religion that say, do, 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 to get. Jesus says, no, I give. And therefore you do. If you're doing to get from God, that's enslavement. It's not freedom. Jesus says, listen, you don't have to be people who live in shabby booths. But, you better regularly remind yourself of the wilderness part of your life. And respond with true belief that leads to actual freedom. Can I pray with you?